Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. This is episode 14. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are talking about the end times, one of the most controversial and (laughs) oft-debated parts of uh, the Christian faith. Um, It's something that there's been debates going on for for centuries, millennia, uh, and it's... it's, uh, not only controversial, but it's something that often makes people uh, sort of disparagingly adopt a position that they will often jokingly call uh, pan-millennialism, <laughs> just saying, you know what, it's going to all pan out in the end. And so, uh, and people often wonder, as we've talked with people, um, what's the point of mm. the end times? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's all going to come to an end, who cares how it's going to come to an end. If I know that Jesus is going to win at the end of the day, whether that's going to be with a future thousand-year kingdom or whether we're living in the thousand-year kingdom now, what does it really matter? I know that it's all going to end, God's going to to win, and I should just keep living my life the same way today. And so that's part of why we want to mm-hmm. get into this whole idea of eschatology, to look at some of the actual practical implications for how it does change how we live as Christians, changes how we approach the world, it changes how we approach politics even and culture. Uh, and so it, it actually, in a very deep way, often that is unnoticed by many people, uh, affects mm. how we live today. Yeah, it was a complicated issue even at the ascension of Jesus the disciples were already confused about what would happen. They, Jesus is preparing literally to ascend to heaven, and his disciples say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Mm-hmm. And that's an eschatological question, of course. Is this the end? Is this, you've, you've risen from the dead, Jesus? Uh, we trust in you. We worship you. Now is this the end? And uh, to which Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times the Father has set by his own authority. And then he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit, that we will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And um, now we're waiting for Jesus to return, because the uh, angels appear to the men at the Ascension and say, Jesus will return, and so go get to work, basically. And um, now in the meantime, we are trying to study God's Word so that we would be prepared for the day of Christ's return. Yeah, so I think a little bit of the influence or reason that we're, we're doing this is that we have just recently returned to doing our evening services mm-hmm. here at Ammon Valley, Almond Valley, for those who live outside of <laughs> Ripon. Uh, and so we're getting back to our series that we were doing back before COVID has, has had hit. Um, we're back in the book of Revelation now, and mm-hmm. so... Uh, we're thinking about these issues a little bit more as pastors once again. 
And so before we really get into the different positions, which we'll look at here shortly, uh, we want to look at a few of the practical implications of eschatology and how it uh, affects people's lives and how, as pastors, uh, we, we want to address these important questions of what's, what's to come. What, what is the, the world beyond going to look like? What do mm-hmm. we say, uh, for example, in my ministry just this past week, a, a young student asked, is it really, is eternity just eternity? That mm. sounds terrifying to me, that it's just going to be this mm. ongoing, endless thing, and it's going to seem just sort of monotonous, and over time it's going to just be the most boring thing in the world. And, and this was bringing a little bit of anxiety mm-hmm. to this student. Mm. Uh, so what do we tell students about eternity? What do we tell people about eternity? Uh, so... One of the other questions, though, that's really important to ask is, what do we say at funerals? Mark, yeah. what, what is your approach to funerals with this idea of death being so near and people are wondering, yeah. what is, where is this person? What, what does their reality look like for them? Well, eschatology, that is the study of the last things or the end times, matters a lot for funerals because when most people... I would say most Americans, whether they go to church or not, come to a funeral, they would expect to hear almost exclusively about heaven and Hmm. um, how we escape from our body, Mm -hmm. and um, especially if this person has been in church and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ, and we've seen all kinds of fruit of the Spirit in this person's life and can be quite assured of their salvation, Um, there can be almost exclusive talk about heaven. And um, that's a eschatological um, representation of their theology of sort of, your, to your question, um, where do we go? What is forever like? Yeah. And so at a funeral, I often, especially at the graveside, um, put a lot of emphasis on the resurrection, hmm. the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of this saint who has passed away, which we believe will happen when Christ returns to make everything new. And so it's what the theologian N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. Hmm. And so life after death, or what is also called the intermediate state, is heaven or hell. And then certainly for the believer, life after that, um, after uh, time in heaven with the Lord, we will be welcomed into the Lord's new creation. And so the funeral can recognize that, where it's not as though death has had victory over a person's body and Jesus has saved their soul. That's Mm -hmm. the way that it can sound a lot if there's just heaven, that's what we're waiting for. Mm -hmm. But Christ's victory was absolute and um, impacted us in body and soul as well. And so we, we too will be raised, just like what the Heidelberg Catechism says. Yeah, there's a big dis- difference between Christian eschatology and what you might call pop eschatology. Yes. Yeah. Um, the idea in pop eschatology is, is, yeah, you die and you escape. You go to heaven, you float away. There's even I'll an, fly away. an old song, yeah, I'll fly away. <laughs> just uh, when I die by and by, you know, I'll I'll fly away. It's no big deal. I won't be here anymore. Yeah. I'm getting away from this bad place mm-hmm. and going off to be with God in spirit. And we're going to fly around maybe like mists or we're yep. going to be like little angels with 
with bows and arrows. And Harps, yeah. We're going to be on the clouds, and that's going to be our existence uh, forever. And yeah. if that's the case, you can understand why it sounds terrifying to a young person hmm. that they're going to be like this forever. Yeah, I once heard a pastor say people's views of heaven and hell are determined far more by far side cartoons than they are by the Bible. Mm-hmm. And and it's so true. a far side cartoon that we've all seen, there's, there's hundreds of them probably where there's a little joke about what hell is like and there's a joke about there are jokes about what heaven is like and people's ideas even of god are impacted by what you just called pop theology which is yep. often not biblical and so how we talk at a funeral that matters how we think about death how we think about um, the future and even what we pray for um, we then as christians hopefully, if we're truly biblical, mm-hmm. we'll pray just hungering for the return of Christ to make everything new mm-hmm. far more than we would pray um, just to sort of escape this yeah. this mess. To hit the eject button yeah. and get the heck out of here, you know? That's often the sort of idea that people have, and yep. that, that fits in with, with a lot of even Christians' views of the end times, but that's helpful for talking about a funeral. What about... Uh, Christians watching the news, mm. uh, seeing, especially in the 20th century, the return of Israel to uh, to their nation. You know, they had been in the dispersion for yep. for so many years, for decades, for centuries, yeah. for millennia, yeah, and then they are all returning back. 1948, the nation of Israel um, becomes a functioning nation once again. People from all over the world, Jews from all over the world, are moving back. Mm-hmm. Um, how central would you say is modern day Israel, is the state of Israel or the nation of Israel to God's salvation plan? Does this mean that the end is nigh or or and how do we approach this as Christians, as reformed Christians? Well, one's eschatology will have a huge impact on how much they quote unquote support Israel. That's a even that term is quite loaded depending on a person's eschatology. So, hmm. for example, those who hold to what is called a premillennial dispensational view, this is the idea that um, there's a very literal, um, and I would even say wooden, interpretation of a book like hmm. Revelation so that Israel um, is regarded um, so highly that the Lord would almost need for Israel to be a certain way in order for him to bring about the events that he's promised in his word for the end times. And so, therefore, hmm. the, the Christian and uh, our nation, America, should support Israel as a nation-state um, just full stock, just putting putting the support behind them because that's... God's protected nation, God's protected people, and um, in order for Jesus to return, they need safety and they need land and yeah. um, they need a strong military, so forth and so on. You, you can see it has a lot of practical implications for politics if one believes that Israel must be a modern-day nation-state that is protected by um, America in, our, in the case today. Mm-hmm. And then it has a resumed temple yeah. worship and so on. So we need sure. to do all that we can to play our part 
so that the end will will come because and it's often seen by many that yeah with the founding of the nation state of Israel in 1948 this was the sign this is the sign still yeah. for many today and so it's interesting too though how the distinction between for for dispensational premillennialists uh, the distinction between Israel on the one hand and the church mm. on the other hand, yep. th- there's a very stark contrast between the two. Yeah, another practical application of eschatology of someone's theology of the end times has to do with how we understand our own government. And um, it's very easy to find examples in modern-day culture, certainly in 20th century culture, where people with a very rigid interpretation of different things in the book of Revelation in particular, have deep suspicion for the government, um, often interpreting that an antichrist or the beast who will rule will be a political ruler, and um, it's, it's pretty clear that there will be political rulers in Revelation who are opposed to the kingdom of God. Hmm. But mm-hmm. um, when, when one develops a theology that is, is very rigid, that will say this person is the Antichrist or um, this person is the beast, um, that develops within them, I would say often, kind of a rebellious attitude towards government in general because they're always so suspicious of who might be actually working under the authority of Satan. Yeah, that's a very good point. There's This often plays in with conspiracy theories, yeah. and you're looking for all these ways that, that, that world governments are working against their peoples or limiting maybe trying, freedom. That's a big trying one. to uh, amass global power. So that a lot of people look at the UN, for mm-hmm. example, and are deeply suspicious of any sort of globalized power. The EU. Um, And there could be reasons, actually, to be suspicious of such things. Sure. Maybe globalized power is is wrong because maybe we need more local power, and that helps benefit people. But uh, there's often this sort of looking for the grand scheme behind everything, trying to lift the veil a little bit and see Satan at work and every little thing that, that is happening. Yeah, so this is called the historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation, where the historicist will want to apply each um, story or uh, vision of John to an individual or a punctiliar event in history. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually, this has happened since Jesus ascended to heaven, that people have wanted to do this, and... Um, certain prophecies have had more legitimacy, I would say, than others, um, but hmm. definitely the historicist will always be uh, probably reading Revelation and trying to decode. These are the decoders mm-hmm. um, of the book of Revelation. And also, um, some people who maybe wouldn't call themselves historicists, always trying to interpret Revelation literally, but who are what are called re- Radical two-kingdom theology. Uh, This is the idea that there is the city of God and the city of man. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and never the twain shall meet. They are starkly different, and there's a thick border between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And, uh, for example, the church is, of course, hopefully in the kingdom of God. Each, Each congregation is seeing 
um, mm-hmm. experiencing the benefits of God's kingdom, and often the opposite of that would be the government or the world, uh, yeah. worldly things. And so the radical two-kingdom person will maybe not interpret Revelation always in the most literal fashion, but will often fall into, I would say, many of the same traps as the historicist by becoming deeply suspicious of hmm. uh, any government activity, um, even often where the government activity could even be led by Christians who are working in government. We have an example right now in our own nation where Francis Collins is a uh, yeah. deeply thoughtful Christian man who is one of the um, bosses of Anthony Fauci and the CDC, and um, he is is even blamed for sort of the mask protocol and so forth. And, and so even though this is a, a great Christian man, um, the radical two-kingdom person might say, but he's functioning in the state, which is a corrupt institution, and so therefore, let's just go off to the side and hmm. be our church and, and just sort of withdraw. Yeah, that, that's an interesting part of the radical two-kingdom theology or view is a withdrawal. So you can see sympathy mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the historicist position of interpreting Revelation and the radical two kingdoms. This isn't to say that they're always the same people yeah. who espouse both. Yeah, a lot of radical two kingdom people would not be dispensational yeah, or historicist. Right. Right. They would be more amillennial in there, and we'll get to what that means in a minute. Mm-hmm. But um, but they, they do still end up, I would say... Functionally looking much the same. They do look the same, and, and I would just be honest and say it is a very pessimistic attitude mm-hmm. towards the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, just as I preached this past week on the mark of the beast and this coming week on the mark of the lamb, such people would give far more attention to the mark of the beast than they would to the mark of the lamb. And mm-hmm. so uh, we have God's mark on our foreheads. Um, we are, we belong to God. If we are believers, certainly we can know that. And, um, and yet those who, those whose eschatology is more pessimistic in nature for the world will, will focus, obsess even, about the mark of the beast and just think about those things without looking at a lot of the encouraging things that there are actually in Revelation. Yeah, that reminds me of a video I've seen from years and years ago of it was some woman, and she's at some convention, it looks like, and she has a booth that's set up to show that the Monster Energy Drink logo is actually the oh, mark of the beast. Yes. And she's trying to I ran into a lady like that at the... of it <laughs> and showing how those who are drinking this, this is the mark of the beast. Yeah. This is it. And there's this hyper awareness of man, this is this is it. Or there's a, a hyper obsession over obsession. They yeah. got it. They decode you flip it upside down, you look at it a certain way yep. and you see these three things and this means this thing and you know they start getting all all kind of crazy, and it's yeah. it's a little bit. Uh, it should show us that, yeah, we should not worry so much about about trying to find the mark of the beast and little things like that. We should be more concerned with what are the marks of the lamb, uh, and so the, the positivity yeah. of, of Revelation. Yeah, uh, we 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 can't lose out on that too. Um, but it's important then if we're going to have this discussion, and maybe some people are already having a hard time keeping up. Um, and so it may be good to sort of define our terms a little bit mm-hmm. um, by looking at sort of the major views of eschatology that are in existence, particularly when it comes to the uh, 
thousand-year reign of yep. the book of Revelation in chapter 20. Uh, there's this interesting uh, passage there that mentions this thousand-year reign, and many people don't know exactly what to do with it or how to handle it. Um, and so in the history of the church, there's been three or four, depending on how you slice it, major views or groups of views uh, when it comes to understanding this uh, this thousand-year period. So there's four that we'll get into, and the first is historic premillennialism. This is the view that at the end of the present age will be there will be a tribulation followed by the thousand-year reign of Christ, and when he comes, the Antichrist will be judged, Satan will be bound, and he will reign for a thousand years. And so at the conclusion of this reign, though, this thousand-year reign, Satan will be released, and he will instigate a rebellion which will be quickly crushed. And the righteous, the unrighteous will be raised and judged, and after this, the eternal state will be ushered in. And so uh, after all of these little pieces in the story happen, that's when eternity comes as we, uh, as we perce- or conceive of it. Uh, then there's a view that is slightly different, but related to this, called dispensational premillennialism, or you could flip it around and say premillennial yeah. dispensationalism. Um, I've heard both; both are common. And dispensational means uh, periods of time. Right. So that's this a big is deal. Similar to the historic premillennial view, but the key difference is is that it posits a pre-tribulation rapture. So before this seven-year tribulation, the church will be secretly raptured away. You may remember the Left Behind movies or books um, where people are just instantly gone and the rest Mm -hmm. of the unbelieving world is is there and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation and then there will be uh, this thousand-year reign uh, where Christ will return. Uh, and there will be a thousand years of general peace. Uh, but, and another interesting distinction or difference from the historic pre-mill view here is that uh, there's this, this sharp distinction once again of the nation of Israel mm-hmm. and the church. This is where that whole idea finds its home. This is dispensational premillennialism. Um, and the dispensational part, as Mark said, uh, is about different dispensations, different... Mm-hmm. Uh, Moment. So they read all of Scripture through a lens of God's dispensations or his, yeah. I guess you could say, his interactions in different times and different places. Yeah. He has a plan with uh, different leaders of the Old Testament. Those fail and continue uh, in dying out, failing, and then he restarts something with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember correctly, there's about seven, depending on how people read this, seven dispensations. Yeah. Uh, all the way through Scripture, um, and so they would generally be yeah old. T- well, there would be right. maybe the pre pre fall dispensation. Yep. Then so there's the Noah. Yeah. Um, and Abraham. then, but really, I, people could think of it most generally and think Old Testament, New New Testament time, um, which I believe most dispensationalists would say we're in the New Testament era bef- until a rapture mm-hmm. would occur. Um, it's like the church age or the church yeah. dispensation. And so and then the rapture occurs, then there's a short dispensation of a seven-year tribulation followed by um, the reign of Christ. Yeah, so it's a different reading of Scripture that is very different from our own uh, as Reformed believers who have a covenantal reading mm-hmm. of Scripture where we see it all as one flowing story. It's not so much that 
uh, things fail and God restarts things constantly, uh, but it's that uh, God is making his covenant even when his people fail, mm. uh, even when there is uh, a breaking of covenant, God has promised to keep the covenant, and so the covenant expands and enlarges, and then in the new covenant, it is the it is the perfect covenant, covenant and it's mm-hmm. It's better than the old, but it fulfills the old. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't... Uh, it's not in spite of the old. Right. It, yeah. yeah, it's a fulfillment of it. And I, so there's a different reading of Scripture had between the two camps. Yeah, and from my reading of historic premillennialism, it seems more general to me than the very specific dispensational yeah. premillennialism. It's typically the dispensational premillennial view, which really got started, I think, in the 19th century and yeah. really got kicked into high gear in the 20th century, especially with Israel becoming a, a nation again. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, some big names in that movement would be uh, Schofield and Darby. Yeah, Jay and Darby Th- being a big one. They would be the early proponents of dispensational theology. And then, of course, you have, through the 20th century, um, rapture theology becoming very mm-hmm. popular. And honestly, through these left-behind books, which... Mm-hmm were hugely influential for the way that people think. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I know that the authors, LaHaye and Jenkins, are dispensationalists, but um, I don't think that they were setting out to write what they think exactly will happen. They were fictionalized. It was, it's historical fiction is almost right. the approach that they have. However, the impact, the impact they've had is mm-hmm. that people read these books thinking it will be just like this and maybe the names will be different and it will Nikolai Carpathia or something like that is the bad guy. And so maybe that won't be his name, but he will look just like that guy and so forth and so on. So that had a huge impact. I mean, people have approached me um, in the church. This happened a little bit in my previous congregation where um, a young man comes and he's like, I pastor, I figured out what's going to happen now in the end times. I read this book and hmm. this is what we believe, isn't it? And he basically described the rapture and the tribulation and so forth. And I, I, we worked on it a little while after a couple meetings. I tried to share with him that's actually not my viewpoint, but I do think it is a very popular, however, not as popular view as probably was the case about 20 years ago. I hmm. think that it's... It's, Zen- it's zenith was probably early two thousands, and yeah. you just don't hear as much now about dispensational theology being like at the <laughs> forefront of evangelicalism. No, you don't. And I, I can remember actually at my public school, I went to a K through eight school, uh, Clay School, whoop, whoop, Clay Cougars, <laughs> and in our public school library as a kid for our accelerated reading program, mm. maybe some of you have done that. You have to get AR points. You have to read a certain amount of books. <laughs> some of the books we had, was the it was the whole Left Behind series. And so me being a little Christian kid, I was like, I'm going to read these Christian books. And they were quite beyond my, my reading ability when I decided to read them. But I do remember trying to read the book Nikolai uh, and trying to read the first book of the series, forget what it's called, well, I think it's just left behind. Popular they were. I think it's just left behind. Yeah, yeah. It just goes to show how popular the work they were, and maybe some of you have seen the Kirk Cameron movie. Oh yeah, uh, there's three of those, right? Tribulation Force. Oh man, is another one. <laughs> I just remember the one where they're on the airplane, and all That's of a sudden the first people one, are yeah. just poof, they're gone, yeah. and all their clothes are remaining. Uh, yeah, that still sticks in my mind to this day. But yeah, typically 
if one of them, yeah. If you've heard uh, or seen all kinds of charts about end times mm. theories, that's typically coming from the dispensational premillennial viewpoint. One of the more comical, although kind of sad, applications of this is um, often dispensational premillennialists will be very, very conservative. And so um, there was a university that was teaching this theology and the girls at the university were, were required to wear skirts and, you know, like the ankle length denim skirts that, that you often see um, among very, very conservative Christian people. And they actually would at t- would wear um, rubber bands around their ankles so that if they were raised up, hmm. then they could close their skirts so that it would not be an immodest moment because they would be gathered up into the air and they had these rapture band things oh, that they man. would put around their ankles so that that they um <laughs> that they wouldn't be sort of exposed you might say um and so that's uh that's kind of you talk about practical applications of theology um that's how far this can go and i don't i certainly don't want to say that every person who believes in the rapture would be kind of nutty like that yeah um, totally um there are people who believe this in our own church mm-hmm. and um they hold very strongly to that view and we don't want to uh dismiss it um kind of out of hand or, or even be condescending towards it but um I, I do think that it is it is not correct but at the same time it's not a required belief of our church to disbelieve this yeah it's it it needs to be said here maybe that these viewpoints that we're listing off and talking about fall within the pale of Christian orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. This is not, uh, if you believe this, you're in, you believe this, you're out. uh, These are all legitimately orthodox Christian views. A person does need to believe in the return of Christ in order to be, I would say, an orthodox Christian. The Apostles' Creed has as one of its final lines that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And so one does need to have a eschatology, um, believing that there will be a judgment, there heaven and hell exist, there will be a new creation. Those are absolutely essential doctrines in the Christian faith. But um, the question of how and when is, uh, of course, very... uh, very gray in in the way that we answer that. So uh, maybe that confronts something else that we should get to, and that liberal theology will often have really no view of eschatology. Um, The liberal theologians of this day, um, you would really never hear a liberal theologian in the church, um, in the so-called church, um, talk about the return of Christ. Yeah, the day of judgment. Or heaven and hell, even. Yeah. Uh, maybe heaven, but pro- definitely not hell. Hell yeah. is going to be a big question for them. And um, uh, Louis Burkhoff really summarized this well by saying, liberal theology has no interest in eschatology. He just put it very bluntly in his systematic theology. And I'll read a little quote about what happens in liberal theology. He says, the blessed hope of eternal life has been replaced by the social hope of the kingdom of God exclusively of this world, and the former assurance respecting the resurrection of the dead and the future glory has been supplanted by the vague trust that God may have even better things in store for man than the blessings which we now enjoy. 
So that is a, I think, a very punchy and helpful um, description of liberal theology. Yeah. I've, I've even seen it in um, uh, exams for ministers where there will be a lot of question about heaven and hell and new creation and the return of Christ mm-hmm. and a lot of emphasis on, I would say, more morality and um, interpreting the kingdom of God as pretty much just here. Yeah. And it's here, the kingdom of God is now, with almost zero emphasis on the eschaton. It sort of reminds me of a lot of liberal theology's arguments for the resurrection, that Jesus wasn't bodily raised, but he was spiritually that raised. That would be and Bishop so, Shelby Spong was right, a big thing. It sort thing. of spiritualizes everything. So that you may even hear that, yeah, the kingdom is, is totally here. Christ yeah. is reigning now. Almost to the point where this is the eschaton, it's fully realized. There is no, there yeah. is no coming of Jesus. He's yeah. already here. He's reigning. And so we live towards this idea of the social kingdom and the here and now. We want to change the world because this is it. This almost is eternity. There's there's not actually much beyond beyond this point. Yeah, and, and two big names in that movement would be John Dominic Crossan and Shelby Spong, who actually... I would say by this point in the year 2020, can be very easily established as false prophets, not just by the word of God itself, but Mm. by their lack of following. Like People don't really talk about that theology all that much anymore, but it was the hot Mm. way to talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God when I was even in seminary Mm. about 12 or 13 years ago. It was a big question of our our Crossan and Spong and the, the Jesus seminar, are, are they, is this really the future direction that Christianity is going to be going? More of a loose interpretation of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that has not played out. Those churches have just died off. Nobody yeah. goes to them anymore. They're empty. And um, there is still a orthodox um, belief in the return of Jesus Christ. That has remained, certainly. And the influence of Spong and Cross and is very, very little at this point, even in hmm. the scholarly uh, stuff that I would read about the topic. So yeah. um, at, at one time, oh man, this seems like the future direction, Crossan especially, uh, one could read yeah. the Wikipedia article on him for a little was description Crossan of that. an Episcopal priest? Yeah. No, Spong was. Spong was a bishop, right? Yeah, he was the bishop of Newark, I believe, yeah. um, Spong. And then John Dominic Crossan, um, he's an Irish Irish okay. by background. I believe he was a professor okay. at a school. And, I know um, less about him. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, they developed this idea. They say this is the way forward. Um, there are still a few followers um, of these guys of who are pastors of churches. However, uh, just their influence has absolutely waned, um, and, and you would never really... be. And it makes good sense that it fades away, because there's no positive... Um, sort of force behind that. It's just like, oh, well, kind of whatever, and we can be moral and good, and yeah. there's very little reason to go to church if there's, uh, or, or worship the living God or grow in grace, the grace of Jesus Christ if there's no heaven, there's no hell, there, you know, it's, it's, there's no eschaton, there's no urgency to be ready for the return of Jesus, and so where there is no urgency, people just drift away. Yeah, I mean, that's true of I think a lot of the mainline, more yes, progressive churches today absolutely. in general, not just because of their views of eschatology, whatever they may be, but just because they have hollowed out 
uh, what true Christianity is and the substance of true Christianity. Mm-hmm. True Christianity demands everything of you. Pick up your cross, die. That is true Christianity. Yeah. Progressive Christianity tends to say, we need to pat you on the back, encourage you to be, be good. your best self, be good, be a nice person. And let's face it, you don't you don't need a church to tell you that. Everybody else is telling you that. <laughs> sure. So why wake up on Sunday mornings and go to church? Why why waste your time with these people you may not even like uh, if mm. you're being told all the same things from everywhere else? So yeah, the more and more that churches do that, the less and less they have to offer people. I think. Yeah, and um, so that the, the call the call of true Christian living is yeah, die to yourself so that you may truly live. Yeah, uh, and that's. That's an important part. So now we've looked at yep. historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, maybe even the progressive view of yep, the liberal theology that I yep. think falls outside the pale yeah, of orthodoxy. It's, it's outside. So now we can move to uh, a different view. So the, the first two premillennial views talk about this idea, and as the name implies, premillennial. We are before the millennium. We are living now before the millennium. There's a future thousand-year reign of Christ. Next view we should look at, the next two views actually uh, posit what is called amillennialism. Mm-hmm. And we could say there's amillennialism proper, and then there's postmillennialism, which we'll look at in a second. Mm-hmm. The amillennial view sees that the thousand-year reign of Revelation is what we are living in now. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a literal interpretation of this idea of thou- a thousand years. It has a... Uh, I guess figurative, figurative yep. interpretation, yeah, of those thousand years. So it doesn't actually try to. It's not trying to communicate one thousand years, no less, no more. It's trying to communicate uh, a, a long period of time, an era, an the era. end times. Yeah. So the amillennial view uh, is basically that we are living in that thousand years now, and that only what remains to come is Christ's return and judgment, and it will be the resurrection of the dead and the the, the just and he will judge the or the, the wicked and the just sorry and he will judge the wicked and the just and the just the, the saints uh, will go to be with him in glory um, so there's basically the day of the Lord that's going to be it uh, as far as I I know oh yeah so yeah. what are some other thoughts you have about amillennialism well amillennialism places a large emphasis on the publicity of the return of Christ. Um, yeah, that's those who hold to rapture theology is maybe a shorthand way of saying dispensational premillennialism. Those who are waiting for a rapture really talk about the rapture as a very secret event, and that's displayed in those left-behind books where, whoa, what happened? Nobody knows. All these mm-hmm. people are just gone. However, amillennials, um, which is where my sympathies lie, um, look at the scriptures and see that there is an extremely public event, one that no person can deny that every single person in the world is aware of is happening because hmm. um, you have descriptions in um, a book like Zephaniah in the Old Testament, First uh, Thessalonians in the New, along with Second Peter, where the day of the Lord is accompanied by just cataclysmic events that are all happening simultaneously. The trumpet call of God and of the archangel, and um, the dead are rising from their graves. Um, all of these things are happening, and it's what Zephaniah and Second Peter call the day of the Lord. It is mm-hmm. the moment that Jesus has is returning to 
make his new creation to judge the living and the dead and and usher his saints into life with him forever in the world that he will make perfectly. So yeah, that that publicity is a huge factor in amillennialism. Yeah, so one helpful thing to say maybe to those who would be confused by a lot of the distinctions between the different views so far is that amillennialism basically says we are further along in the timeline mm. yeah. than what the premillennial people are saying. So we are closer to the end than than the premillennial view would would posit. So this means that the amillennial and postmillennial views uh, see that certain things in the book of Revelation have already mm-hmm. come to pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premillennial viewpoints see much more of the book of Revelation as still yet to come. It yeah, they're on the they're be, watching for them. Yeah, yet to be fulfilled. Yeah. Um, so that, that's different from the yeah. The, maybe the historicist is wanting to see how throughout history different parts have been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But for most dispensational premillennial people. Almost everything is still yet to come. Yeah, and so that's really helpful because one another term. There's a lot of terms with eschatology, but preterism yeah. is yeah. A, is an important term. That yep. I was talking with somebody after my sermon this past Sunday, where I talk about the mark of the beast and how it was believed in the first century that the um, imperial cult was had the mark of the beast, and it was possibly Nero, who was the beast, and or Domitian. Both of them persecuted Christians very strongly uh, in some very sadistic ways, and um, they required that you know their image was on the money that people were exchanging, and so it would seem as though that was a mark of the beast. And so many people in that day, and even still today, believe that the beast was... Uh, was he, he existed, he mm-hmm. was in that first century, and um, now we live in the, the final chapters of Revelation where there will be persecution, but there will be endurance of the saints, mm-hmm. and um, we're awaiting a return of Christ. And so this is called preterism, where um, the vast majority of the book of Revelation is believed to have occurred in the lifetimes of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And some people were surprised to hear that that's a view, but um, yeah. and because it's not really that popular of a view. However, um, it does make some biblical sense. You just look at Revelation 1, verse 1, where Jesus says, I'm going to tell you about what will happen soon. Yeah. The, the day is near for these events to occur. And so the preterist really looks at that and says, and he meant what he said, and they happened in the lifetime of John. Mm-hmm. So that then fits in very well with the, the next and final view of postmillennialism, mm-hmm. which is a form of amillennialism. They both, the, the, the word amillennial means ah, without. without a millennium. Yeah. And technically speaking, postmillennialism has the same view. There, but it isn't, there's no millennium. It's that there's no millennium in the future to come. It's that we're living in the millennium now. Um, it, it has started. Yeah. So the post-millennial view is is you could say a sub a subsect or a strand of the amillennial view which tends to be very optimistic about the future. Mm-hmm. Thinking back about the premillennial view, you could you could sense a sort of things are going to get worse and worse and worse before 
uh, before Christ's come, Christ comes. Yeah. Um, Revelation 13, view, and the whole world goes with towards the beast. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the post-millennial view sees that things will get uh, incrementally better. And so that one proof text from this would be Psalm 110, uh, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, this is, you could say, the Father and the Son speaking, mm-hmm. sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this idea that more and more the, the enemies of the Lord will be uh, incorporated under his authority. Yeah, subdued. Subdued, yeah. Uh, that Christ will reign over all. Mm-hmm. Um, another good one would be the parable of the mustard seed, where Christ compares uh, the mustard seed to the kingdom. And this, this mustard seed grows and grows and grows so that eventually birds of the air are, are nesting there and are being blessed by, by it. Um, or maybe the, the very next parable there um, about uh, the parable of the, of the leavened bread and mm. how the little bit of leaven eventually leavens all of the bread. And so spreads. It, it yeah. spreads throughout and it improves. Um, and so these are some these are some of the proof texts often in the postmillennial view. There's a lot more to it than this, but uh, the general idea is a, a d- idea that the kingdom is being built by God in our midst, and it's getting the world is becoming uh, a better and better place. There are different uh, markers for what makes the world better and better. Mm, yeah. um, and there, this right. doesn't mean, mean that there can't be places or moments or people groups where things seem to be getting worse. Um, but over the grand course of history, uh, things are improving. Uh, so some people would say that this has to do mainly with like a general sense of morality. Hmm. Uh, maybe Christian values and morals are becoming more and more common across the globe. Um, the spread of the gospel. The spread of that the would gospel be a big is one. a huge one. So you could also say the Great Commission yeah. Is a, is sort of a post millennial verse that Jesus says, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you." This idea of expansion of of mm-hmm. uh, Christ's dominion stretching all across the globe uh, through His kingdom, uh, expanding in His people's midst as they witness to it uh, and as they uh, see God working in the world. Yeah, and you see that a lot in Second Peter, where it talks about the patience of God in um, in holding off the day of the Lord, so that all might come to be yeah. saved, and because the Lord desires that those that that people would come to Him and be saved, and so the post millennial person would say, we see that the gospel is spreading, that God's word is being translated, and it's going out to the far reaches of people groups who have never been contacted before, and hmm. um, and that shows progress in the kingdom of God. Right. Um, so while we could sit in America and say, man, uh, people's morality, generally speaking, was just more Christian 40 or 50 years ago, and I think that it would generally be uh, uh, accurate to say that with some exceptions of things like yeah. racism and yeah. uh, wanton capitalism, um, but... Uh, we, we could say that, wow, in, in America, it seems like we're moving away from what is biblical Christian morality. Mm-hmm. In the world, we certainly would have to agree that more and more people are becoming aware of the gospel. And so taking a more global look, post-millennialism could be fairly convincing. Yeah. So now that we've sort of given our our, our 
explanations, simple explanations of these views, overly simple explanations for sure. Uh, we should get back to what we promised at the very beginning of this. How mm-hmm. do these views, mm-hmm. how, how does holding each one of these views affect very deeply how we interact with the world, how we um, see our engagement with culture or uh, maybe we should run from culture. You know, that those, these are the, all the sorts of things that, that uh, are wrapped up in these eschatological views, which again, people don't think are all that important. They just think, oh, it's going to pan out. So I'm just called, called to be a Christian mm-hmm. in the here and now and live my Christian life. But more than people often realize and know, these views that they hold to, sometimes even unwittingly, uh, affect how they live. So how, how does each one of these views sort of change how, yeah. we, how we do that? Well, the constant command of the New Testament is to be ready to prepare yourself for the day of Christ's visitation, to be blameless on that day, um, blameless in, in body and soul. Um, and so how we get ready really is determined quite a bit by some of these eschatological views. For example, if one has a pessimistic attitude towards the world, then a good thing to do to get ready for the return of Christ would be to remove yourself from the world. This is the Anabaptist view. And um, that is a withdrawal from the world so that we might be ready. Um, it's a, I would be critical of that view and call it a retreatist view. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're on the retreat. Head we're, to the hills. We're going to go to the corner. And um, I hear people talk about our own state of California in this way very often. Oh, yeah. Where time. we got to get out of here. Yeah. Well, this is bad. Like, and this is not going to change. It's not going to go well. And so... Uh, I would say within some of those statements is a fairly retreatist or a defeatist attitude towards the gospel and towards Christian ministry and the mission of the church. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we should allow the pendulum to swing to the other side and just say, oh, uh, God is, uh, he can't, can't be stopped, which is true, but to take that into practical application and say, I'm, I'm just going to um, go to City Hall and preach the gospel, and then Gavin Newsom will will be a Christian, and this whole thing will just turn around tomorrow. <laughs> you know, um, and so I, the, the pendulum um, should be. We should be careful about it swinging too yeah. far one one side or the other, because the um, the person who is retreating really is rejecting a lot of God's blessings for them as they endure persecution, as they endure opposition, as they learn grow in boldness and in purity contrasting perhaps their life with their neighbors, not in a um, self-righteous way, but to say, wow, the Lord has saved me from so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who is sort of a triumphalist will eventually be disillusioned, I would say, and probably even discouraged that God isn't just, in, in the pure post-millennial sense, just exploding uh, the growth of his kingdom right in front of my eyes. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, you're you're totally right. I think with people with more of a pessimistic outlook on the the movement of the world's morality, uh, this typically is the, the premillennial view. Mm-hmm. There's more of a run for the hills. The world is is bad and it's getting badder. So I need to take my kids, take my wife, uh, put everything in the truck, and head for the hills. Well, Jesus literally says head for the hills life. at one point in the last days, and so that can seem like. Yeah. a permission to 
withdraw from the world. Yeah. And that's not really what that means, I think, in that text. But I think that people would proof text that to say, hey, it's right there. Let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and what often, the, the view of holiness for these people often is uh, a, what I would say is a passive view of holiness. Mm, yes. Where I, I'm holy by not uh, being influenced or being affected or becoming like the world, but I'm I'm holy by just not doing those things. Um, so this person would read the Ten Commandments, for example, and say, well, as long as I don't murder someone, then I'm good. And as long as I don't commit adultery, I'm good. Uh, but it, they don't have a high view of passive activeness, or of, I mean, of active righteousness, mm-hmm. um, passive activeness, oh man, <laughs> of active righteousness in the world. They don't want to go into the world and live righteously. So yeah. something that's important as we've been teaching the Ten Commandments still with our youth group is not just saying do not murder, but live for the good of the person's life around you, of your neighbor's life. Do all that you can not to slander them, not to rip them down, not to discourage them or ruin their reputation or to get vengeance, but do all that you can to treat them with love and with respect and dignity, seeking to improve their life in physical ways, in in mental ways, emotional ways, spiritual ways, all of it. Uh, And so we should live uh, in that sense of active holiness, trying Mm. to... um, to do something good in the world. Yeah, and I heard uh, the Bishop of Los Angeles, Bishop Robert Barron, recently say, he gave a definition of love as, to love is to wish the good of the other. And so um, one who is always retreating and withdrawing is not living in Christian love towards our neighbor. Um, And honestly, I mean, in this very heated political climate, that love is very necessary to wish the good of your enemies, to wish the good of people who disagree with you, um, to wish for their good and to enact um, different, uh, sort of do different actions that would bring blessing to that person is uh, very difficult. And to me, that's one of the themes of Revelation as well, is the difficulty of being a Christian in a world that is very hurt and stained by sin. Um, this will require patience and faithfulness on the parts of the saints. It says at the end of, or in the middle of chapter 13 of Revelation, this will require endurance and faithfulness on the parts of the saints. And um, the retreatist doesn't really want that. The triumphalist doesn't really want that either. And so um, I would say a purer, better, um, more orthodox interpretation of all these end times things is to say, how can I love my neighbor? How can I remain faithful to God and fulfill Jesus' prayer to be in the world but not of the world any more than Jesus um, was uh, during his ministry? Yeah, and faithfulness will cost you. Um, that's I, I think that's part of yeah. the message of, yeah. of Revelation. It is there too. Uh, you have to endure. You have to uh, sacrifice, and you will even suffer at times for what you believe, but... That's why we need to be patient and to to hold fast to what we what we confess uh, and continue living in the way that Christ has called us to live. Um, so, just to be honest, I to get my cards on the mm. table a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, I would I lean towards the post millennial view, but that's a good a good point to not be overly triumphalistic uh, in a sense that I don't think I have to suffer. Uh, mm. I will have to suffer very much. All of us will for what we believe.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say, uh, I'll often say I'm a, a millennial with some post-millennial sympathies, yeah. or maybe even just calling myself a optimistic amillennial. Yeah, maybe that's where I'm at, too. Yeah, and and so I, certainly I do see that there are these texts that say um, that as Christ sits at the right hand of God, our Father is making the enemies of Christ um, subdue, subservient to Christ. That is a promise of the scriptures hmm. that Psalm 110 is so central for much um, New Testament theology. It's one of the most quoted chapters of the entire Old Testament. I think maybe is the most quoted in the New Testament. Um, and so that is a, a, an important yeah, thing that, that the post-millennials can contribute. Um, but uh, really, yeah, at the same time, to believe ultimately Christ wins. Um, and so we have a lot in common with the premillennial dispensationalist mm-hmm. who believes that very same thing too, that Jesus Christ... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and we go to make disciples in his name. Really, when the rubber meets the road, we are, are so similar to yeah. uh, the, the premillennial dispensational, the uh, postmillennial, the historic dispensationalist, and so forth. Yeah, we have a different place. We have a, we have a, we th- we think we're in a different place on the timeline. Yeah. but there's there's a lot that is so similar. Right. We we see them as brothers and sisters in the faith. And this isn't meant to be an attack on them in any way. It's more <laughs> of sort of to get everyone to think about this a little bit more and how it does impact our lives. At the end of the day, it is true. Jesus wins. That is yeah. the message uh, or one of the messages of Revelation. Uh, but it is helpful to think through how on a day-to-day level um, our views of of God's coming kingdom uh, or of the 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 even the thousand year reign affect how we live. It's yeah. not something that we can just write off. Uh, we, this goes back to one of our earlier episodes talking about scripture and the perspicuity or the clarity mm. of scripture, uh, the the necessity to read all of scripture. Uh, if God has taught it to us, if He has written it for us, it's for our benefit, and we must do. Our part, we must give due diligence to read it, mm. to try to know it, to set our minds to, to understand as best as we possibly can, uh, what God is speaking and saying to us. Yeah, and maybe just in closing, I would say, want to repeat one of the most common commands of the whole Bible, which is three words: "Do not be afraid." And um, four I, words. I, oh, do not be. Yeah, that is four words. Sheesh. <laughs> um, wasn't thinking. Um, so those four words are from old, the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. They're all through right. Scripture. Do not be afraid. Trust God. And uh, also look with a critical eye at those who want to use eschatology to make you afraid um, because that is not the teaching of the Scriptures is that we should be very suspicious of the world and afraid whenever we leave our church or our Christian school community or Hmm. when we listen to a song that isn't written by a Christian artist, um, people will use eschatology to make people afraid. Um, I would say they are false prophets because true prophecy will lead one into faith, into obedience, and into confidence in Christ. And so uh, do not be afraid. Uh, God wins, and uh, it will be a glorious end to this history that we live in now when he comes again. So 
thank you so much for listening to this episode about uh, eschatology. It's complicated. It's (laughs) mysterious. And uh, maybe another um, listen on the mystery episode after this one would do us all well, I would guess. But um, thanks for listening so much. And uh, God bless you and the rest of your day. Yep. The Lord be with you. Bye.